Amen. Good, good Father. And I'm loved of Him. That's who I am. That's who I am. I hope that you receive that today uh, because God loves you so much that He was willing to sacrifice the life of His one and only Son just for you. What a good, good Father. Well, good morning and welcome to our series out of the Sermon on the Mount. This is going to be a journey throughout the remainder of the summer. Uh, so it's a long trek, uh, but it's a good trek. It's a challenging trek. And uh, I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and join me in the red letters of your Bible. If you have a red letter edition Bible, you're going to jump into Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You'll discover it's all red. It's all the words of Jesus as he shares one of the longer uh, discourses uh, that he gives in the Word of God. Uh, this is called the good life. The good life. And the good life is simply a life of following Jesus and loving obedience and doing a life of good out of a heart that is becoming good in him. That's what we're talking about. And I'm not sure if you've noticed it or not as we've been journeying our way through these words of Jesus. Uh, this is hard. Has anybody noticed that? I mean, some of the stuff that he's been sharing with us and talking to us and encouraging us to do in his name for his glory, to be salt and light in a world that is bland and dark, to stand apart from how everybody else lives their lives, this is hard. Amen? Oh, my goodness. If you're not saying amen, you haven't been here. You need to go back and listen to the other two messages that we've just recently come through because we've talked about the reality that we shouldn't show contempt or anger for people, but rather we should be peacemakers. Last week, we talked about the issue of lust, kind of straight up. Uh, that message, uh, last week, when I put it up on the web, has had 50 hits this week. It's the most uh, listened-to message that I've preached since I've been here in one week's time. So I think I've tapped into something there. You see, these things are challenging. We are to be people of love, not lust. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about being people of integrity, not being people who manipulate others for our own ends or designs or goals. And so what you're going to discover is that what Jesus is telling us is absolutely countercultural. Everything in here is absolutely counter our nature. You see, it's in our culture because it comes from our nature. And so everything Jesus says that we are supposed to be different than actually challenges our very nature. And so the tendency is this. Thank you, Jesus. I, I almost hear what you're saying, Jesus. It's kind of at arm's length, though. I'm not really sure I know what you're saying, Jesus. Wow, Jesus, I, I don't know if I understand. Oh, sure you do. Sure you do. I like what one uh, Danish theologian said. A man who lived in the 19th century, a man by the name of Soren Kierkegaard, said these words, and I thought that they were helpful for us even this morning. Uh, notice what he said. Uh, the matter is really quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. Now, he's including himself in that statement. By nature, we don't like what we hear. Uh, we pretend to be unable to really understand it because we know very well that the minute we do understand it, we are obligated to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. How would your life look different? 
jumping sakes, you'll feel like this. My God, you will say. If I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. You will find people who will tell you anything you want to hear because a lot of what you hear from the Word of God is very uncomfortable, so we make it comfortable. The challenge is this. Don't put Jesus at arm's length. Don't put his word at arm length. But rather, what I want to encourage you to do is to take his word, and I want you to embrace it. And I want you to take it to heart. And I want you to take Jesus to heart. Because his goal is to give us the best life that can be lived this side of heaven. And it is a life of beauty. It's a life of holiness. It's the life that he can develop in us. Jesus has more than enough grace and forgiveness, mercy and patience to help us get down this pathway together. But please, don't put him at arm's length. Embrace him completely and watch him transform your life. So can we go there together? I hope so. I hope so. Because the tendency is to not want to do that. So today, we are going to continue on in this sermon series, if you will, by looking at a growing life of integrity, becoming free from manipulation and self-protection. Notice with me what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 35, verse 33 to 37. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. That is not taking away the idea of hair coloring ladies or Grecian formula men. The idea is we can't change the root color of our hair. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from what? The temptation to manipulate circumstances and people for our own benefit. That's what he's talking about. Let's pray about this, and then let's jump into what Jesus has to say, because just as in the last two weeks, it's challenging. It's very challenging. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Uh, If we were not so assured of your love, evidenced in the cross, we might doubt your intentions through your word. But we cannot doubt your love, so we do not doubt your intentions. You love us enough to tell us the truth, and you love us enough to enable us to live it by your grace and goodness. Father, I pray today as we step into this portion of Scripture that your Holy Spirit will be at work in us and that you would make us just that much closer to the image of your Son in our lives today. Thank you, Father, for your glory in Jesus' name. And the church said... Amen. Amen.
So again, throughout Matthew chapter 5, Jesus Christ is giving us sharp distinctions. Sharp distinctions between the culture at large and the way that he longs for his people to live by following him. That distinction is what is salt. That distinction is what makes us light in this lost and dying world. So Jesus uses that statement, you have heard that it was said to those of old. That's the cultural way of understanding it. But I say to you. So let's unpack this as we have unpacked this over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Jesus, first of all, speaks into the command. The command. And this is the common understanding uh, that was there in the culture. He said this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not uh, swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, What Jesus is doing here is what he has done in the previous two episodes as we've looked at this. He's reaching back into the Old Testament, into the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God on uh, tablets of stone, and they reveal to us the true heart of God. And so a couple of weeks ago when we were together, we looked at Commandment 6, You shall not murder. Jesus said the true intent was the issue of being angry with your brother is akin to murder. So let's not be contemptuous. Let's not treat people that way. And then last week we looked at uh, commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. And the idea is not that you don't physically break the act, but you should not lust after somebody in your heart. That's the true intent God had behind his word. So today, he actually picks up on two more of the Ten Commandments in what he is talking about here. Commandment number three, where it says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, you shall not swear by God's name and then fail to do it because that will take his name in vain. And then commandment number nine says this, you shall not bear false witness or lie against your neighbor. So what he is doing here is he is honing in this idea of our words. Our words before God, our words before men, and he is saying that as followers of Christ, we need to be careful with our words because our words have great meaning and great power. Let me kind of share with you what I mean. How did God create the world? He spoke it into existence through words. How has God chosen to reveal himself to us? Through the word. How is it that we carry on an ongoing, uh, growing, uh, intimate relationship with a living God? How is it that we do that? It's in words. It's called prayer. As we talk to the Father, as we talk to the Son. So words have great ability and power. Words are part of, of, if you will, the... The image of God in us, the ability to communicate, the animal world never got that ability. But we have been given that ability by God. And so what Jesus is really harping on here is this. Be careful how you speak to and of God, and be careful how you speak to other people. Because we're supposed to love God and love people, not use God and abuse people. And that potential exists within all of us through how we choose to use our words. And that is exactly what was happening in this day in the land of Israel where Jesus was talking. You see, Jesus is affirming that the Bible does indeed commend and regulate 
vows, um, if you will, uh, promises. One of the places that you'll see that written in the scriptures is uh, Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2. Listen to what it says. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do it according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. This is one location. Uh, if you were to look in Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23, as well as Leviticus 19 and verse 12, you would find similar statements. So in the Old Testament time frame, God said oaths and promises were allowable, but they were to be ultimately um, followed through on. So Jesus is affirming that God had said that. But the problem in his day and age was this. They had gotten so good at building further structures around that simple understanding that you could actually make a vow with no intention of paying it and thus use God to abuse people. They were good at this. You know, up here we have people that are called Sadducees and Pharisees. They're religious leaders. There's also a group of people up here called lawyers. Lawyers are renowned for the ability to make loopholes, to, to give you fine print, to hide what you really want to do in order to always make every situation benefit you. And so in that culture, in that day, they actually had various ways that you could swear, if you will, give an oath, that if you gave it a certain way, you, didn't, you weren't responsible. But if you gave it another way, you were responsible. Something like this. I promise, I swear that I will do such and such by the city of Jerusalem. That's not binding, by the way. But if I said, I promise, I swear to do this by bowing toward Jerusalem, that's a binding oath. So just by saying by or toward made it binding or not binding. And so they had all this manipulation going on, all these, these nuances of, of escape clauses to get exactly what they wanted by vowing God's name and ultimately using and abusing people for their own advantage. Jesus talks more about this a little later in Matthew, Matthew chapter 23. He kind of lays them bare there where he says this, Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it doesn't mean anything. But... If anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is now bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is really greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? He's kind of poking holes in their thinking. And, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. You can get by with that. But if anybody swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is now bound by this oath. You blind men. For which is really greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, notice, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the very throne of God and by him who sits on it. So they had gotten really, really good at concocting a convoluted system that actually defeated the very purpose for oaths. They had ultimately gotten to the point where they could manipulate and scheme to make every situation ultimately benefit them. 
Manipulation, half-truths, fine print, loopholes, ambiguities, and nuanced escape clauses. Swearing evasively became justification for lying. And that was rife in this time where Christ lived. And when you sufficiently complicate things, you don't have to be accountable anymore. This past week, I got a wonderful notice that said, hey, you're due for an upgrade. I said, oh, I'm due for an upgrade. I'm a little techie, so I kind of like that idea. And so I walk into AT&T. Hey, guys, uh, I'm doing an upgrade. Yeah, you are. You know, we're so happy you're here. And so about an hour and a half later, I finally walk out with the phone. You know, it's a kind of deal. But it took forever for the computer to work and for them to ultimately get it. But, but so when it came time to sign, there was a contract, a fine print, like 0.8, you can't really read unless you have a magnifying glass and a lawyer on your left hip who can explain it all to you. But how many people actually read that? How many people sign that? Yeah, you see, we do that all the time. We sign stuff that we never really read. We know nobody really reads it, and they know nobody really reads it. So it, it just makes them not responsible for anything. And so, you know, they were doing it in Jesus' day. We continue to do it today. All the time, we put people in positions, forcing them to do things that they have no intention of really doing, but we end up signing away the rights. So this goes on all the time. It goes on in their culture. It goes on in our culture. In that day, you didn't have to be honest. You didn't have to be uh, people of integrity. You could turn every situation to your advantage and other people's disadvantage simply by how you chose to use your words. The whole system had become so corrupt that Jesus said something very startling. So notice with me, Jesus' clarification of the situation. He basically says this, but I say to you what? Enough's enough. It has become so corrupt, it's not redeemable. So I don't want you to take any more oaths. Now, just for those people who are sitting here, maybe in the military or whatever, it doesn't mean that we can't take vows or whatever. It's not that. In fact, later on, Jesus is adjured by the high priest to say whether or not he is the king of the Jews, and he says yes. So even under that oath, he was willing to say something. So I just want you to say his point here is not oaths per se. It's honesty. It goes beyond merely the, the, that thing even beyond our words, to our hearts. Again, the issue is our hearts. So he says, do not take an oath at all. And then he goes on to make clear why. Uh, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus relates every oath to God. To swear by anything is to swear by God, for God in some way stands behind everything. So to manipulate oaths for one's own advantage is to use God for your deceit, which is a very, very serious which is why Jesus made it clear, enough is enough. And we're just going to get right to the chase. We're not going to use all these words. We are going to make this much easier. Here we go. Let what you say be simply and... Aha! 
That's it. No flowery speech, no justification, no additional aggrandizement, no ways to manipulate the situation to make yourself win and others lose. No longer using God for your own ends. I simply want you to say yes or no. I want you to be people of honesty and integrity. That's the way my followers are. The rest of the world, not so much. But that's what it means to be my follower. Anything more than this comes to evil. It comes out of a heart that is seeking to manipulate others for its own sake. So this is what Jesus says to the folks in his day. If I could kind of contemporize it just a little bit, uh, I would do it like this. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. That's it. Tell the... Tell the... There you go. Now, of course, that's Will Smith who played in this movie that came out around Christmas time called Concussion. How many saw the movie Concussion? Good. You know, a few people, like in the first service, not one person had seen the movie. I thought, really? I actually went to the movies to watch this movie. I liked this movie. But if you don't know what it's about, it is based on a true story of an African doctor who came to America, and in Pittsburgh, he was uh, there as an examiner, and he examined the bodies of some of the Pittsburgh Steelers who had died young and discovered that they had a brain injury. And as he pursued this, the NFL got really upset and angry because like it or not, the NFL is a business above all. It is the entertainment industry. And the reason why they exist is this. And the, the idea of concussions threatened this. In fact, they had to make a settlement just recently with the uh, former players who are suffering all these consequences for 750 million of these. So when you're running a business, it's not a good idea to make sure your money gets all given away. So they fought it every step of the way. They did everything they could to sidestep it, to bring in doctors they knew would lie for them. Everything they could in order to make the situation best for themselves in spite of what it meant for the players. Now, sadly, they've ultimately had to take responsibility for this, but in the process, they have damaged their reputation. They are now seen as money grubbers. That's why they're there. That's what they do. And they will use and abuse players to make their monies. That's just what they do. But you know what? Before we get too hard on the NFL, let's kind of bring this home. Let's kind of consider for just a moment ourselves in light of all of this. I'm going to do a little experiment with you. I would appreciate your honesty. Here we go. How many people in the last five years have told a lie? If every hand hasn't gone up, you're lying, so put your hand up. All right, here we go. The last three years. Okay? The last two years. Okay, this year. This month. Today. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little too close. How many are pleading the fifth because you don't wish to incriminate yourselves? Sure, sure. Okay, so we kind of established the fact that we're all liars, okay? 
Now, let me ask you this question. Be honest. How many people here feel like you're basically honest? Yeah, yeah. Now, do you see a contradiction between those statements? I lied, but I'm honest. Do you know, if you go to a psychiatrist, they call that schizophrenia, okay? Uh, but we actually have that schizophrenic ability in us. In fact, psychologists actually refer to it as the power of rationalization. We each have the ability to rationalize whatever circumstances we find ourselves in in order to protect ourselves in the process. You see, I bet if you went to the NFL owners, they would all give you a very good reason why they chose to sidestep the whole concussion issue. They all had a reason, a rationalization. But let's go from there to here. We're just like that. In our heart of hearts, we all have this need to justify ourselves, to rationalize situations for our own benefit. Every one of us is like that. Um, why? <laughs> why are we like that? Why does that seem to be so deeply ingrained in us? I, I appreciate what, what a man of God by the name of Tim Keller uh, has to say about this issue. Tim Keller is a pastor in a Presbyterian church up in New York City. Uh, he has written a number of wonderful books, Great Thinker. Uh, in his book called Counterfeit Gods, he makes this statement. So notice with me uh, what Mr. Keller has to say. Why do we lie or fail to love or break our promises or live selfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we're all weak and sinful people. That kind of is a nice broad brush that seems to cover the base. However, he goes, but more specifically, the answer is that there is something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. There is something more important to our heart than God. There is something that is enslaving our hearts through inordinate desire. He says this, the key to change or even self-understanding is therefore to identify the idols of our hearts. To identify the idols of our hearts. When we need something more than we need Jesus Christ, we have a tendency to live out of the deficit of soul. Please listen. So often, even unconsciously, we manipulate others or circumstances for our own personal gain or to protect our, self, our sense of worth or value. Gain, worth, value. Those are all economic terms. You see, it's easy for us to look at the NFL owners and say, you money grubbers, all you care about is money. When in fact, we have our own value that we're pursuing, and it's ultimately much the same thing. You see, because we have this need, we have a scarcity of mind, a deficit and a poverty of soul. And because of that, we exaggerate, we overstate, we embellish and enhance, or we rationalize, explain away, excuse, and defend ourselves because we need to inflate or protect our sense of self-worth. Thank you, John. John. 
Let me know the score when you're done, okay? It was a pinball machine. So, subtly, we tend to manipulate people and facts, situation, even our vows and promises and contracts to manage our sense of poverty, always to cast ourselves in the best light. Being less than honest in all our dealings comes down to this sense of need, this deficit of soul, this poverty of heart, this sense of needing worth. And it all is because of a lack of identity in Jesus Christ. It is because of a lack of identity in Jesus Christ. You know, if we're ever going to be people of integrity, we need to begin by being honest with ourselves and ultimately honest with God. Thus, we can be honest with others. And so Tim Keller, as he begins to play out uh, this idea of idols throughout his book, Counterfeit Gods, he makes this statement concerning our hearts. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. We're always putting our, our affections on something or something else. This will do it. This will do it. No, no, no. This is what I've been missing all my life. This is what I want. This is what I long for. Our hearts are like that. And he goes on to say this. The key characteristics of any idol is that it's nearly invisible to us because it is so innate to us. But an idol is anything we make more important than God. An idol is that which absorbs our hearts and minds more than God. Anything we seek to give us what only God can give us. Anything so central and essential to our lives that if we were to lose it, life would no longer feel worth living. That's what an idol is. That's what an idol is. Now, Keller goes on in his book to, to talk about lesser idols, those things on the surface that we can kind of tangibly see, like money and relationships and, and sex and, and workaholism and all those things that are kind of on the surface that we pursue. But all of those lesser idols actually come out of several core idols in our being. Idols that, that are there because only God has the ability to meet it, and if God isn't meeting it, we will seek it through other means. And so Keller goes on to give us these words, these three core idols. My life truly only has meaning or worth if, if I can find acceptance or approval from others. My life only truly has meaning or worth if I can find security or comfort. My life only truly has meaning or worth if I can find significance or power. These are the three core areas in our hearts and lives. These are the core needs that every single one of us has. And the question is, how do you satisfy these needs? Because none of these needs can ultimately be satisfied apart from Christ. But we try in so many ways to satisfy them otherwise. So let me add just a little bit more definition to each of these core needs. And maybe you can put your finger on yours. I think while we're kind of a network of them all, I think one kind of stands above the others in our hearts and lives. And my hope is today, this morning, you would understand that Jesus Christ is the one that can meet that need that you've been seeking to have filled. 
So let's, let's talk about the issue of acceptance. Maybe you're somebody here today that would say, you know, my, true, my, um, my life truly only has meaning or worth if I can find acceptance or approval, a longing to be accepted by others or desired. If your poverty of soul is acceptance or approval, the deepest need is for affirmation, for love and relationships. Your greatest nightmare is rejection. Your greatest nightmare is rejection. People around you often feel smothered by you because you are needy and you seek to get from them that which they could never rightly give you, something to fill a deep, deep need hole in your life. Your problem emotion is fear, fear. So without really even knowing it, in craving attention and approval, you are always in danger of being codependent on people, using people. And there may even be a string of difficult relationships in your path or in your past. And it is because of this feeling of the poverty of your soul, you feel threatened. So you will manipulate circumstances or people to protect your sense of inadequacy in your fragile self-worth. We do these things. We talk around the edges. We are half honest. We manipulate circumstances all in an effort because of this poverty of soul. We're trying to gain it from others. So that is finding acceptance and approval. But maybe my life truly only has meaning or worth if I can find security or comfort. This is a longing for more or for personal pleasure. If your poverty of soul is security or comfort, you have the deep need for possessions, privacy, lack of stress, and freedom. Your greatest nightmare is financial stress or demands on your time because they will keep you from having or doing what you want. People around you often feel neglected. Second place. Your problem emotion is worry or boredom. So without even knowing it, in your craving for things and comfort, it often means you will manipulate people and environments to keep what you want, what you want most, even to the sacrificing of relationships. All of this comes from a deep sense of insecurity. These are the idols. These are the core idols of our hearts that causes us to abuse God and use people for our own ends. We are to love God and love people. That's why Jesus is putting his finger on this issue in that day and age. The last one, significance. And since we're being honest... In many ways, my life truly only has meaning or worth if I can find significance or power, a longing for influence or recognition. If your poverty of soul is significance or power, you have the deep need for success, for winning, for influence. Your greatest nightmare is humiliation, to be shown up as somehow being inadequate. People around you feel used. <laughs> they are a means to an end. They are there to achieve a goal. Your problem emotion is anger or being easily irritated by others. 
So without even knowing it, your craving to win and never being perceived as an adequate means that you will manipulate people in situations to always be seen in the best light. You are prone to exaggeration and the need for just to, to, to justify your actions. All this comes from a deep need of the poverty of our soul. These core needs, and they are true needs. I'm not saying they're not. But if we're not careful and they are directed inappropriately, we will have an idol in our lives, and this idol will set us up on its throne, and it becomes all about me. And the kind of sacrifices this idol demands are other people. And hence, we end up harming God and hurting people. So often, so much of the trauma and the, the damage, the woundingness in people's lives, the hurt, is because people walk around using God and abusing one another to meet needs that cannot be met by other people. Only God has the ability to meet the deep, deep needs of our heart. That's who Jesus is. I think these things are in our lives to make us seek him, to keep us leaning toward him, saying, I need more of you, Jesus. I need more of you, because nothing else satisfies in this life. And so, with that in mind, this is what the truth is. I'll believe the truth that I am already accepted in Jesus Christ. If I struggle with the issue of performance or accomplishments to make me feel accepted and valued by others, I need to remember that I am God's child, that I am Christ's friend, that I have been justified, that I am united with the Lord in one spirit, that I am bought with a price, I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I am already a saint in Christ. I have been adopted as God's child. I have access to God through the Holy Spirit. I have been redeemed and forgiven. I am complete in Christ. Somebody needs to hear that today. Because you have been trying to find the sense of adequacy, the sense, the sense of acceptance through all these other people and all these other relationships, and they can't do that. That's not even fair to them because God never designed them for that. And yet we use them for those ends. Why does it not go well? Because it can't. Christ alone is the one who can give us our sense of identity, of true acceptance in him. Maybe your issue is more the issue of security. Security. Well, I need you to understand this. I am, for, uh, I am free forever from condemnation. I am assured of all good works working together for good. I am free from any charge against me. I cannot be separated from the God of love. I am established and appointed anointed, sealed by God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am confident that the good work that God has begun in me, he will perfect. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. I can find grace and mercy to help in a time of need. I am born of God. The evil one cannot touch me. You see, this is what Christ does. He steps into the gaping hole in our heart, and he says, I'm here to fill it. Stop using God. Stop abusing others. Because that's not why you're here as my follower. You are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as if they were yourself. We can't do that until these core needs get dealt with. 
And then lastly, the issue of significance in Christ. I am salt and light on this earth. I am the branch of the true vine, a channel of his life. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am a personal witness of Christ. I am God's temple. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am God's co-worker. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. I am God's workmanship. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus is your sufficiency. Jesus is your acceptance. And Jesus is your security. Anything other than him will never do. And until we find our fullness in him, we will continue to manipulate, use, and abuse others. So let your yes be and your no be that Simple honesty is what should be true of a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, until we're honest with ourselves and honest before God, we cannot be honest before others. So I want you to take the next three minutes, and I want you to dwell on where you are in light of this. What is your core need? Is Christ filling that need in your life. Think about it, and then I'll close this in a word of prayer. So bring your brokenness in.
Father, you know the great needs of our hearts, and you know how empty we can feel. And Father, I just pray that we would understand today that that hole in our hearts and in our lives has been there for you to fill. And so, Father, I guess I want to begin by just confessing to you that I have sought in so many other ways to meet the need of my own heart. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And I ask right now that in your fullness that you would enter in and cast out these fears, these inadequacies, these senses of poverty and scarcity, and that they would be filled with your riches and your beauty, and that we would stop using you and people for our own ends. Father, there are some people in our lives that we have used. There are some people in our lives that we may have even abused. Help us to go to them and confess to them that we have not been right before them. That only you can fill what we have sought from them. Father God, take this morning Use it for your glory and make us more like Jesus, I pray. In Christ's name.